Hey y'all, it's Eric with a quick note before we get started. Since we are discussing the new trailer for The Mandalorian and the premiere episode of The Last of Us, both of which star Pedro Pascal. This is a very Pedro Pascal-centric episode. So for both the new listeners and old, I've decided to attach our interview with the man himself from last year. So make sure to check that out at the end of the show if you want. All right, talk to you later. Thanks. Go. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today, as always, I am joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you can find writing about video games and video game shows over at ComicBook.com. Uh, today, we are chatting. Today is the Pedro Pascal special. We're talking a little bit of the Mandalorian season three trailer, which dropped during the wildcard game between the Bucks and the Cowboys. And then, of course, we're going to dive into The Last of Us episode one. Before we dive into The Last of Us, though, Kate, let's start with The Mandalorian. Being a Mandalorian is not just learning about how to fight. You also have to know how to navigate the galaxy. That way, you'll never be lost. Season three premieres on March 1st. It is... What Mando season two came out 2020, so it or yeah. no 2021. Um, 2021. Did did it end and then? Oh, it ended at like the very beginning of 2021, right? Because we had Boba no, Fett. Mean, yeah, because there were no there. Were, Boba was last year, right? Yes, we did yes. the podcast on it, and Mando ended the December before. So it's okay. So yeah, 2021. Of course, this is coming. Since then, we've gotten a gang of new Star Wars shows. We've gotten Obi-Wan, we've gotten Boba, Andor, all to varying degrees of success. Cade, you've watched them all except for Andor, right? Uh, Yeah. Okay. That's the best one of them all. I know. I know. Um, so, but <laughs> The Mandalorian is still king. The general thoughts on the season three trailer, what I will notice is, and what I will touch on, my concern is that it seems to be more so than the show has ever been, incredibly Mandalorian-focused, which, uh, duh, Eric, that's the name of the show. <laughs> but if you think about it, the first two seasons have largely been about the journey of, like, Mandalorian with Grogu either finding the Jedi or trying to get closer to the Force or trying to either find himself. None of it has really been about Mandalorian culture. Right. That's going to be changing now. And I am not so sure that that is where the magic of this show lies. Like, I was almost taken aback by how little Baby Yoda was actually in it. Now, hopefully that just means that they're saving their best shit for the show itself, which would be great, of course. But I do wonder how much non-Clone Wars Star Wars fans care about Mandalore and the lore behind it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I do think you're right, probably about them saving Baby Yoda stuff, because at the end he uses the Force on whoever that's supposed to be. Uh, and I feel like that's going to be a more prominent thing this season. Grogu kind of using force and doing some more crazy shit i want to see him jumping over people and some other wacky shit just because i think to be hilarious i'm excited to see them dip their toe into some order 66 stuff that's my favorite star wars thing is just this genocide of jedi and that's what you think that brief clip of the lightsabers is because i if i remember correctly 
they've shown that image before or an image like it similar in one of the other seasons uh from Grogu's perspective and I wouldn't be surprised if they show either a longer sequence from his perspective or from someone else's perspective or whatever it may be um I'm I'm very interested in that stuff but you're right like I don't know enough about the Mandalore stuff in general to get excited one way or another over that I'm hoping it's good. They've they've done no wrong with the Mandalorian stuff so far. So I I think if that stuff is as good as the other stuff, then we're fine. But I don't know. You know, when season two ended, I said, I doubt that they're going to keep Mando and Grogu apart long because that's the heart of the show, right? Little did I know that they would resolve that before <laughs> season three even aired. And now I wonder if that was a mistake because... Like, like, I had my boss literally ask me, he's like, why is Grogu back with Mando in the trailer? Didn't yeah. they just part, like, so not only is there just, like, confusion for people who probably wisely did not tune into Boba Fett, which was really just two Mando episodes wrapped in, like, you know, just extra layers of bullshit, of Boba <laughs> bullshit. But I think just from a dramatic standpoint, right, Luke busted in at the end of season two was, like, a dramatic high point of... Star Wars fandom for like 20 years. People were going fucking nuts for that. Right. And then to have Luke re because Luke is in Boba, right? Like he he lets yeah. Grogu, you know, choose between the chainmail armor or the lightsaber. That would have been the most effective way to start season three because not only are you like bridging the gap between where they've been and where where they are now, but you are still keeping the emotional through line of like, okay. Like the Force and the Jedi and Grogu's relationship to it still factors in, which I think at the end of the day, and our pal Brandon put this out in a tweet, is what people are most compelled about, right? It's the Jedi and Sith and the lightsaber duels and all that stuff. So I think what this trailer made me feel most, other than that flashback scene, is how notably removed all that stuff was. Yeah. I will caveat that saying Ahsoka is coming out likely this year. So maybe that is where all of the Jedi stuff is being saved for. But I do sort of wonder if Mandalorian is being turned into less of a less of a Grogu and Din Djarin story and more of just like a mothership for Star Wars storytelling at this point that, mm-hmm. that will serve as sort of an anchor for everything else. That'll just, you know, you'll get Boba Fett to dip in and out and you'll get Bo-Katan to dip in and out and Moff Gideon and ahsoka and luke skywalker and it'll just be like a variety hour star wars show i mean i'm trying to think we didn't see any glimpses of any like super duper significant characters from the star wars universe at large outside of the mandalorian no you know that they'll have that stuff yeah i'm trying to think of oh oh there was uh babu frick right yeah Uh, there was a subtitled version that i saw and it it didn't say it just said like his his race so I, it might not even be him. I don't know, but I, I hope. Oh right. Oh okay. Um, because uh, I remember that was like one of the leaks, and I think people just assume, or like a leaked trailer a long time ago. I think people just assume that was him, but I don't know if it actually is. Uh, I hope it is, but uh, I wonder. The f- end of the first season didn't. The end of the first season was the dark saber thing getting yes. introduced, and then Luke Skywalker at the end of season two, and so they've had some big moments. I'm curious to see how they'll end this one because it sounds like they still have plans to keep going after this. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I mean, the trailer was cool. The, a lot of, as you would hope for with these shows, great production value. It looks amazing, feels amazing. Uh, but the story is not roping me in in like a super exciting way yet. But it doesn't mean I'm not excited. It's just, just to, it's you not know, interest, interesting. Just to test that theory, I went back and watched the season one and season two trailers. And just the sort of dramatic scope feels different it felt more mm. important whereas now it feels like oh let's go have some fun with mando and grogu sure season one or two is like this baby is the most precious thing on earth if it doesn't yeah. get to where it's going everybody's fucked and now that just seems like it's been taken away so look yeah. this could i am hoping that this was just an intentionally thematically plottingly light yeah. trailer that is my hope here. And I and like you said, I, I think you said this, they've done nothing for me to doubt them. So yeah. I'm not going to. I'm just analyzing the trailer in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's completely correct. And I think especially coming off of Obi-Wan and Andor and all these other big things, you do lose kind of that scope and scale, e even though it looks big, right? But like when you have so much of it at a certain point, it all just kind of meshes together, right? All right, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will dive into the first episode of The Last of Us. All right, Ian, we are back. We are diving into The Last of Us, episode one, the pilot, the premiere, When You're Lost in the Darkness. I think it clocked in at 81 minutes. Craig Mazin had said that the original plan was what wound up being the pilot was originally supposed to be two separate episodes, but they yep. ultimately decided to combine them to give you more time with Ellie and Joel to hook you into the story a bit more. I think that's why I'm trying to picture of when they would have cut it off. Like when Ellie died or when Sarah dies, I guess. I believe that was the intent. And then maybe you would just get, I guess it ends at the 20 years later section. So I think you might've seen the very, very beginning chunk. Yeah. Just, of, just like a gray that. Joel. Just yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think they would made the wide choice because it gave it a real sense of like cinematic appeal and stakes, mm -hmm. right? Like my girlfriend during that, it's not necessarily a one shot, but during the sort of outbreak sequence where they're in the car and they're going to the city and my girlfriend is quiet for like 30 minutes. Right. <laughs> and then once I think once they, once the plane crashes and they Crazy. black out and they yeah. wake up, she just turns to me and she's like, this is nuts. Yeah. <laughs> like just completely floored about why, about what she was seeing because the way that they sort of shot it as if it was, a, and I mean this in a good way. Yeah. As if it, it is a video game cutscene, and to put you in sort of the first person perspective of Joel's driving or no, sorry, Tommy's driving Joel's in the front seat, Sarah's in the back seat, And so are you. Mm -hmm. So I think those combined things, the sort of the technicality of the film making and the time spent really served to get you hooked in not only to the story, but of the relationship and the eventual death of Joel and his daughter. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't played the game, the uh, speaking to the audience at large here, uh, that sequence is pretty much like it is in the game. You're Sarah at this part of the game and the game starts with Joel coming home from work, she gives him the watch and then she goes to bed and then she wakes up and he's gone and she's wandering around the house and all this stuff. And then their neighbor breaks in and Joel comes in and shoots him. And then he carries Sarah out to the truck. And from there you have control of the camera from her perspective and you're able to rotate her around the backseat of the truck and watch things around you. So they did so a like really the great down. Yes, exactly. They did a really great job translating that pretty much everything in the car 
is exactly what you see in the game. That family on the side of the road that they pass by and all this stuff. Uh, it's when they start to get towards the city and stuff that they kind of up the scale of it because it's in the game. It's so very chaotic, but they're like, we have a lot of money. We can we can crash a fucking plane. And you're like, that is super cool because that implies the infections on the plane and these right. people started ravaging everyone on the plane and Bro, just fell out of the sky. Right. That's Bro, scary yeah. as hell. I didn't think about that. And, and, you know, it's funny, we had said going into the show that we felt it was going to have more thematically in common with Station Eleven than right. it did The Walking Dead. And in Station Eleven, they have a plane falling out right. of the sky as the sort of visual motif of the world is ending. Yeah, because in the game, they they crash their truck and then someone like hits them and then they get out and then a car drives into a gas station and blows up and sets the whole block on fire. So this was like that times like 15, you know? <laughs> uh, so I, I think they just made a lot of really cool choices to just like up the stakes, make it more tense, make it more scary. And again, the idea that that plane fell out of the sky means there were probably dozens hundreds of other planes that were falling out of the sky that day which is just a horrifying thought Alrighty, so before we dive into the episode itself Cade, what are some of your favorite zombie post-apocalyptic movies films tvs games i've got a few here these are obviously like i am not and this is across all genres not just zombie genres i'm not somebody who even though i respect what they mean to the industry at large I'm not somebody that's going to go seek out George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. I'm just I'm just I'm just not going to do it. So, all of mine are more modern, which I would say I am Legend, 28 Days Later, Zombieland, Dawn of the Dead, and seasons 1 through about 2 and a half of The Walking Dead. So those are sort of the the zombie touchstones that I've grown up with. And then you can get into more not so much zombie but post-apocalyptic stuff like book of eli or the road mm. or um oh man what the hell is the one i'm thinking of? oh uh children of men. men yeah so, yeah um yeah i those are some of the best i think what you just listed uh to add on to it i would say like train to Basan. i don't know if you've mm. ever seen that very good yep uh the donald dead remakes really great uh world war z um trying to think there's 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 a lot of good stuff uh the it's not a zombie thing at all but i just think the outbreak sequences and these kinds of things are my favorite thing ever always if you have a really good outbreak sequence in anything like this right you've automatically got me by the balls and i think a quiet place part two has a uh, really good outbreak sequence yes absolutely um, great call so yeah that's that i remember seeing that in the theater and just being like Wow, this is yeah. everything I wanted. Great call. That's actually a really good call. Okay, so let's dive into the episode itself, beginning with the cold open that everybody has been raving about. It is a, as you said in your recap, I don't know how you could, it, it, is there an ABC logo somewhere in the shot? Yeah, on one of the cameras when they cut away to the people and like the the camera operators there's an abc I'm logo so on curious it. as to what contractual yeah i was like that's such a there was specific... that the, like it's not cbs <laughs> it's not yeah. nbc so i don't know the cold open is not a part of the game it is a 1960s abc talk show i'm not exactly sure what the context of the show is supposed to be since mm-hmm. we're just kind of dropped in but it's two epidemiologists talking about viruses and fungi and whatnot and 
Uh, this one character played by John Hanna, who just has the perfectly sort of like off-putting British-esque voice, yeah. like where he sounds like mildly <laughs> evil, even though yeah. he's just speaking normally, like he's mm -hmm. not trying to sound evil at all, in a very like Mr. Burns-esque way, just an it's evil Foreboding. Sound. Yeah, exactly. He's sort of, and this is, I think, one of the most effective and realistic descriptions of zombie outbreaks that I've ever seen, because usually when these things happen, we aren't given a reason why. We're given a reason like how to combat it or how to hide from them or, or or where it started even. But we aren't given sort of a scientific breakdown of like, here is what's happening to these people beyond they're infected. But even to a science idiot like myself, I mean, mm -hmm. math and science are a foreign language to me. To so effectively communicate what is happening not just zombies at large, but in this universe specifically where they are just have been infected by regular fungi that have adapted to global warming, which not only like it, it's a double dose of realism, right? Because the one of the first things she says is pandemic. Well, we all just lived through that. Mm -hmm. And then it transitions into, well, what if the world got warmer? Well, then we think, well, shit, it did get warmer. <laughs> yeah. So what's going on here? So I just think that that was just such a brilliant way to ground you in the universe and the science of how this could happen, but also scare the shit out of you with realism. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of very cool, there's a really great theory going around right now that kind of builds off some of this stuff that is uh, um, possibly answered in another episode. So I won't go too deep into that, but um, the, uh, the idea of them setting the, building blocks for what's to come and being very scary and foreboding about it. And there, some of this is based in reality. The cordyceps thing is real. It is a thing with an insects that happens. And um, people have talked to biologists and all these people, ologists. Uh, <laughs> they, they've spoken many times over the years following this game. Like, is this possible for us? And some of them are like, it's not. The chances are not zero. Yeah. yeah and so uh, that's that's always scary. And, and I don't think it would be quite as dramatic as all of this. But with that knowledge, the information that they're presenting here, it's very scary and very effective and creates a unnerving world. And it's a great way, if you haven't played the games, to quickly tell you what this is. It's not zombies. It is something else. And I think that's a very clear distinction they want to make. Yeah, no, because I had just thought ahead a bit to like how that relates to how they'll act going forward. Yeah. All right, so that was one major deviation from the game. What comes next is largely similar to the game itself. We get to spend a bit more time with Sarah than in the game. She goes to get the watch fixed and, and all that stuff that just to further reinforce her daughterly bonds with her father. Mm -hmm. But other than that, as you had just described, it is largely a recreation of the game itself. And yep. I couldn't help but wonder like not so much regret, but disappointment that I wasn't experiencing <laughs> that for the first time. And I'm mm -hmm. curious if you felt the same way. Absolutely. Um, I, I said it in my little mini review on Twitter a few weeks ago. I was like, I, I think this is very good. One of the only things I can complain about is that it doesn't deviate enough from the game. And that's not a problem. It's just like as a person who's watching it, I'm like, I know all the beats and they're still very effective here. But I can only imagine how amazing this Gripping. would be to yeah. just be like, holy shit. You know, it's yeah. it's um, 
it again not that's almost a pro for the show in some ways that it is so good that you want to just have your memory wiped and experience it for the first time i think that speaks very very positively about the writing here so as you touched on there was a slight deviation in terms of how um sarah comes to find out about the virus in Mm. the show the neighbor's dog comes to their door and is freaked out and is barking and she tries to bring the dog back and the dog dips she goes into the neighbor's house in the game it's a bit different yeah in the game uh she wakes up and then goes downstairs and then uh she hears the dog barking outside and then the barking stops which is very unnerving and then um she walks into like joel's office or something and he comes rushing in covered in blood and he's like stay away from the windows get back he closes the sliding door and a person just slams into the window and comes through he gets a gun out and he just shoots the guy in the fucking head and so i mean it's it's not terribly dissimilar it's just how it all kind of unfolds is a little little differently the 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 pacing and structure of it all um but i think having sarah go over there after we've seen this old lady twitching in the fucking chair which is horrifying that it's it's so brilliant one of the best shots i've ever seen like in terms of like dread building yes because we know what's coming yeah yeah, yeah. obviously and then you're just like oh god and even from the moment you see that old lady getting fed biscuits you're like this lady's fucked like it's so over um but seeing this sweet old family just getting feasted upon and then uh I thought I thought it was kind of funny when they get in the truck and and Joel's like, "You stay in the house, Denise," oh, and then they come out and they just get. I, I don't know. That's what he said. We're just basically like, you "Lock your fucking door, Denise." <laughs> yeah. I that was yeah. And right. they didn't okay. listen because if you watch behind oh, Sarah, that they was just also come out. They just get eaten. <laughs> that was another one of my favorite shots in it when Joel picks up Sarah and they're driving out of the cul-de-sac he runs the neighbors over yeah and one of the other neighbors thinking that he just watched his friendly neighbor yeah. Joel commit a violent <laughs> hit and run on this elderly couple yells out like Joel what the hell and goes to inspect on them and and I think it's so great how like this isn't subtitled so they don't right. even really want this to be part of the official dialogue yeah it's just in like the background of the world yeah, you almost have to squint to see it. But yeah, you see as the neighbor goes to check on one of the two that had been hit by the car, the other one stands right <laughs> up and attacks it. So just basically, it does such a great job of we've seen zombie outbreaks before, but uh, and I touched on this the way that it sort of puts you in not the literal driver's seat, but the metaphorical driver's seat of like, you're in this shit in the sense that one of the most, like some of the most terrifying things are happening in the background. Yes, yes, exactly. And that is such an ingenious way to build the world out, like to have it start from the periphery and slowly creep in on you. When the old (laughs) lady, when we first come in on her and she's feeding on what's presumably her daughter or daughter-in-law. Sure. Is that, hair coming out of her mouth or are those like fungus tentacles that's what exactly what it is uh so gross disgusting (laughs) yeah uh that's not in the game so another deviation is these little tendrils and it's a replacement for these spores that are in the game which uh oh yes when you 
there are a lot of sections in the game where you have to walk through like buildings and stuff where you have to put on a gas mask. Uh, but they're like, that doesn't translate visually super well to a show because in a game you're stepping around and doing all this very gameplay heavy stuff. So instead they're like, what if they had tendrils and that does a lot of different things that you'll see more and more of later oh, on. Um, it's pretty fucking nasty though. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the other thing I, I completely forgot to mention when Sarah's at school, she's in class mm-hmm. and she's sitting there kind of daydreaming. And then there's a kid who looks like they're twitching kind of. And I wasn't sure if they were just like moving their hand around like a kid or if there was something more to that. Cause they don't, they really focus on it and there's kind of like an eerie sound but I couldn't tell if that was meant to be something or not. So I don't think it was. I think it's playing with your expectations of what's to come, right? Sure. That happens probably the scene before the old lady in the chair. So I yes. think it's like playing with the idea of, oh, this is how we're going to introduce it with something in the background. And then that is how they do it. I also think it's one of the many genes. So we've just touched on two pieces of camera work here that really mm-hmm. serve to the dread and the anxiety and one of the one of the ones that i pointed out and i'm going back a bit i'm sorry is in the cold open when the main doctor character is talking and this is just the brilliance of not so much the last of us story but just the people make the show itself it's at first it's being shot like a regular three camera tv show where it's focused on the host and then it's focused Mm -hmm. on the speaker and then it's focused on all three and it's going back and forth but as soon as the doctor character says but what if mm-hmm. it pulls to a tight shot? Yeah. And you start getting these anxiety yeah. inducing tight shot close-ups, which are which is an old film trick that's just known to ratchet up stress. And it's just all these subconscious cues that they're layering throughout until the moment of outbreak. And I think that that bracelet thing is just one of those subconscious things. You see a twitch in a zombie show, you think, well, fuck. Yeah. He's a yeah, zombie. Exactly. But they're not quite there yet. Yeah. But then in the next scene, you see the old lady writhing and you see a twitch and a mm-hmm. writhe in a zombie show. You say, well, fuck, they're zombies, but <laughs> yeah. not quite yet. So, yeah. I, you know, it's just a lot of technical brilliance that is what makes the transition from one format to the next so thrilling, right? Even though yes. you and I are both familiar with the story, still experiencing parts of it for the first time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good call out of the camera change because it's it's breaking its own rules and logic of the scene kind of like you said they're just sticking to what would be broadcasted on their tvs and then they go completely different i think that's a really cool touch yeah and then real quick on the outbreak unless you have any more things that you want to touch on i loved how i loved how they do a bunch of things to sort of set you in the in the year 2003 from the (laughs) t-shirt to the art but i liked the touch of sarah wondering if it was terrorists who were doing yes yes yes, that would be the first thing you thought i mean you were barely alive back then sure you know there was like uh post 9 11 i don't know if you were aware of anthrax which was like a poison that they were mailing to like government heads so terrorism would absolutely be one of the first thoughts on people's minds yeah. when this went down. But it also depressed me that like late 90s, early 2000s are now like period pieces. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's no, so absolutely. Fun. And then the one thing that I would, I think there's confusion about on my end or at large, they make a point of it at showing on the truck that there is a combat veteran sticker. Mm. Whose truck is that? 
I'm pretty sure it's Tommy's. Okay, uh, so Tommy's. All right, so Tommy's a veteran. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people misinterpret that as thinking it's Joel. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm pretty sure there's some line in there that says uh, it is Tommy's. Um, but yeah, he's a Desert Storm veteran, and uh, that sort of thinking aligns with the version of Tommy in the games. He's not a veteran, I don't think, in the games, but he is the more capable person over joel but typically to that point then am i really supposed to believe that flaming car is going to stop him couldn't he just climb over <laughs> i suppose like yeah. i get that that's a recreation of what happens in the game but i looked at that and i was thinking to myself like yo you got to make that fire bigger because like yeah, this does the... not look like a uh, hey i'll cast the waiter <laughs> sure. or i'll die brother sure. type yeah fork in the road because in the game what happens is they both go down the alley they, they're running together through the streets and then they go to an alley and then a bunch of infected kind of like break them apart. Like there's a horde that kind of breaks them up. And, and so they have kind to of get a up. horde. We do get a horde glimpse, but they're still yeah. in the truck at that point. Yeah. And so uh, they're forced to kind of break free. Uh, oh yeah. Tommy and Joel go into a bar. Tommy closes the door behind them and he's like, I'll hold them off. And he's like, you better come back. And then they, they run off and, and then, what you see happens and then real quick just while i thought about it and i'm not going to talk about it specifically because i know that there are people out there who have not played the games but your tweet about the future of joel (laughs) i had forgotten like i have played part two but Mm -hmm. i played it the year it came out so i had forgotten what is going to come and like damn that's gonna be like yeah insane discourse yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. if you if you've ever paid attention at all or know anything about the last of us part two, it's a very controversial game and uh, people still, it's like the last Jedi of video games in terms of its ah, status, you know, it, it's just people love to bitch and moan about it. And I saw someone say today, they're like, I, I don't understand why people shit on the last Jedi more than the rise of Skywalker. And I'm like, I agree. Um, Anyone uh, with half a brain has that take, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. Yeah. Hey, do you have anything that you want to touch on on Sarah's death before we move on to present day? Just is it, heartbreaking. Is it, is it largely the same in uh, the game? Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, it comes down to, I think it's very interesting in the game. They don't make it, totally clear why they shoot them you know it's just kind of like fuck these guys uh yeah uh he's given an order to shoot them and then so he does it uh but in this he says uh her foot's injured or something and i think the guy's just like take no risks we don't know how that got injured so we just gotta kill her and that's unfortunate i will just say like the gnarliness of like her being very loud and panicked and then just Mm -hmm. going quiet Mm-hmm. very upsetting yeah i um i'm curious what people thought who weren't aware of the games thought when they introduced a young daughter character who wasn't the one that they had seen in posters and trailers sure. like yeah. were their ears up immediately like oh fuck this is not gonna end well or was it a surprise you know what i mean like i'm yeah. curious because we go into it expecting that dread right like we're like yeah fuck. we know what's coming but i'm curious how that affected you if you didn't like my girlfriend was like is Joel dead? She was like, wait, no, yeah. the daughter's dead? Yeah. Because um, I remember when the game came out, that was a very similar thing. But Sarah and Ellie look at a glance somewhat close enough like that you could confuse right. the two and not see the difference. Uh, so I think it still came as pretty shocking that you look in the box and you look at the girl on the screen. You're like, yeah, it looks 
similar. <laughs> so, but that's not the case here, obviously. All right. So after the death of Sarah, the story jumps to present day, 2023, which is where this story will be taking place going forward and just sort of outlines. We don't really get much. We just get the sort of basic construct of Fedra is sort of the operators of this police state. The Fireflies are positioned as a guerrilla terrorist group. Joel is sort of a laborer, drug dealer, living a very isolated life, trying to get his hand on a battery, go out and pick Tommy up from Wisconsin. He's in a more explicit romance with the character of Tess, which I didn't even know. I didn't even realize that that was implied back in the games. Yeah, it was like kind of like maybe they had fooled around, but like weren't in love necessarily. Like there was something there, but it just couldn't ever be. Which makes me wonder how they're going to use that thread going forward of, of Joel having mm. somewhat romantic relations with this woman. Because sure. like while we know Joel's fate, they could easily play with Tess's fate, right? I don't really remember yeah. how she ends up in the games, but like they, you know, it's not like she's one. The only two characters who fates are locked in, I think, are the main two. Other yes. than that, I think that they could, that they'll play with things as they want, as they're doing here. So it would be foolish to not leverage the romantic feelings that these two have into multiple dramatic moments throughout the way yeah i can't comment on that much because i've seen <laughs> more episodes than you okay, yeah 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 so i've got the first four i don't even know if i'm gonna go oh, okay. go ahead to be honest i've heard three is fucking buck wild so yeah. like i want to get there but like i love having a weekly show like this so to jump ahead Sure. A month. I, you know, it's just, it just yeah. puts me in a tough place, but yeah. that's good to know that I'm sort of on the right page there. Yeah. So, I mean, really, what, you know, what else is there except for the establishing rules of the world that they're in? You know, we see how they sort of vet potential new civilians through a heartbreak sequence with this lost kid who, if you look at him, you would have thought that he spent his entire life like yeah. on the road in this state. Uh, and they, you know, literally put him to sleep. And that's all, you know, all they do here. It's really more just to let you know who Fedra is, Fireflies is, and then, of course, to introduce you to Ellie. Yeah, um, there's a couple deviations here from the game, like uh, the motivation for Joel and Tess to get Ellie to wherever she's going uh, to help the Fireflies is pretty different. This character, Robert, that you're introduced to when you meet Tess uh, is in the game and he stole weapons from Joel and Tess and they're very angry about it. So in the game, they go hunt him down and try to get him back. And then they learn that he sold it to the Fireflies. But in this show, instead, uh, Joel has lost contact with Tommy, who is elsewhere in the country, and he's wants to go find him so he's trying to get a truck and a truck battery together and robert possesses a truck battery that he needs and it turns out it was a dud and he sold it to the fireflies so the fireflies are like take her and we'll get you a truck battery which i think is a much more interesting motivator for these characters it's a lot less like eh, you could get guns back right like right. that's whatever but he wants to urgently get to his brother who he lost contact with almost a month ago. Right. So I think that's a good emotional driver that sets up future moments in the story. 
All right, so we are introduced to Ellie, who's being held captive by the Fireflies. We find out that she is immune to the fungal infection that has turned the world into hell. Marlene makes a deal with Pedro and Tess to take um, Ellie to where? Uh, they're going to the State House, which is just like a government building nearby. So the State House in exchange for a car battery and whatever they need. This is sort of what propels the story forward to what we'll be getting for the next few weeks and months. When they break out of the quarantine zone, they are confronted by the same Fedra officer that Joel had sold drugs to earlier. Uh, he scans them all, sees that Ellie is red, meaning sick. They all kind of have a freak out. Joel sort of has a flashback of his daughter Sarah being killed by a similarly uniformed cop type person. Does he murder this guy? I I wrote that he's unconscious because I, I don't know, but it's it's not out of the question, Yeah, I think. Yeah. Which, I don't know, I feel like is a little bit too much of in the trope of, like, man with pent-up, like, buried rage. You know I, mean? <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't like the idea of, like, Joel, who seems like a decent guy, could just, like, snap and murder somebody who he has a vague relationship with. Well... No spoilers, but the end of the game is all about that. It's all about what? I mean, spoiler for the game. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right, y'all. It's Eric with a quick note again. Kate and I are going to be talking about the ending of The Last of Us game, which means that these are spoilers. Spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning for the series if you do not want to hear us talk about the ending of the last of us game and show skip ahead at least 70 seconds okay 70 seconds from this point he goes into the hospital and kills all those people to pull ellie out oh but that's true but are that's like the whole thing but aren't they positioned as the bad guys? No, I mean, not really. The whole thing is... They were going to murder her. Well, the idea is, and this is this is a long-running debate throughout since this game's release, is, is Joel the bad guy? Because he puts her... He gets her here, and the whole thing he knows the entire time is she possibly possesses the cure, and when he gets there, he learns that, well, we, we have to kill her to do it because she can't survive the process. It, we have to take stuff out of her brain and stuff. And when he hears that, he realizes he's going to lose his his love again, just like with his original yeah. daughter. So he's like, fuck you all. It just right. kills everyone. Right. right. I do remember playing that game. Yeah. That, that part now. Okay. So it's on the table that they, that they could have killed <laughs> yeah. this guy, but it's not confirmed. Either way, it's a hint that Joel has got some serious problems. Something that they had already alluded to, the fact that we see him planning out his journey. He's drinking whiskey, he's popping yeah. pills. So he's clearly trying to keep some kind of darkness at bay. And then in the final scene, we see them going out from the quarantine zone into greater Boston. And as eagle-eyed phantom notice, a clicker can be seen on a nearby mm-hmm. rooftop watching them walk by. And then there's also all that stuff with the code breaking and trouble is on the way. Hey, thoughts on the, uh, you know, the the way that the, the pilot ended and where it sends us from here. Hey, it's a perfect end point. Um, fans of the game know that the, the upcoming moments are going to show the infected properly. Uh, that 
turned over skyscraper is a pretty key set piece from the from the game um and i think the needle drop is great i think that music is awesome i think it perfectly sets the stage the clicker is great uh everything about it perfectly sets up the stakes the character and their motivations um and I think it is a great introduction to this world. I, I think they made the perfect choice by making it two episodes instead of one and giving the time needed to... You mean one instead of two. Sorry, yes. Uh, and, and to uh, give time to really flesh out these characters and spend time with them. Because I think, you know, uh, if you only have 45, 50 minutes, you do lose some of that kind of weight behind a lot of this. But if you show it all at once, you show Joel being the shit out of that guy after having just seen his daughter die and not a week apart, it right. does make a lot right. more sense and it yes. hits harder. Yes. Um, Great point. So I think they did a really bang up job and I can say that it doesn't really lose its momentum. Uh, yeah. it, it keeps going. So all right, I think that's a good place to leave it for the pilot. Make sure to tune back in next week when we'll be covering episode two. Follow Cade over on his Twitter at Cade underscore Onder. Follow me at Eric Italiano and the podcast at PostCredPod. Leave us a review or rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And we will talk to you all next week. Peace. Pedro, get that quick swig in now. <laughs> Folks, today I am joined by Pedro Pascal, an actor you know from projects such as Game of Thrones, Wonder Woman 1984, The Mandalorian, and his latest film, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which hits theaters on April 22nd. Pedro, how are you today, sir? And thank you so much for joining me. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm it's doing my well. pleasure to join you. I love that sweater, man. Oh, thanks. That's looking thank great. Thank you. Um, Congrats on the film. Keeping As me a, awake. <laughs> I'm sure it's been a long, long weekend, man. I've seen you at the premiere and I'm sure you've been, but wall, wall to wall with, with folks like me. So let me just start with congrats on the film. As I told Nick, I was literally slapping my knee and stomping my feet from laughing so hard. And I think what's really cool about this film is that it's the first time in a long time that I could remember laughing like that in a theater. And I think that's going to be the case for a lot of people, man. Oh man, I hope you're right. It's the same for me. We premiered the movie at South by Southwest and it was a packed theater and it was my first time in a packed theater and I can't remember when. And um, it just felt like a rock concert. And I had one of the best, it was, it, was, it was strange to be in the movie. I had such a good time. Um, so what I'm curious about is what is your psyche like heading into day one of shooting, right? Because not only are you starring alongside Nick Cage, an iconically scene stealing performer, but you're starring alongside Nick Cage, who's playing himself, right? Is there an element of you trying to go toe to toe with him of not wanting to be blown off the screen? I'm just curious of what's it like starring hand in hand right alongside such an iconic performer like him. I guess if I was going to um, do my job correctly, uh, to be intimidated is completely, completely natural, but to be worried that they're gonna kind of blow you off screen wouldn't really be good logic for the heart of the character. So it was really easy to kind of anchor myself into admiration and worship. And if he wanted to blow me off the 
fucking screen. He was allowed to blow me off the screen. If he wanted to invite me into the scene, if he wanted to give me light, if he wanted to take it away, I was his bitch, basically. And I <laughs> felt like that was his, but I felt like that was the right thing to do to, to it, it was just such a, it was just such a, uh, it, it, it was the right thing to do for the character and to tell the story. And, um, and, and of course he, you know, didn't want to do any of those things. He's a complete professional. He's an incredible scene partner. Um, there was almost something about, um, I don't know, reawakening the things that you uh, care about um, and why you got into it in the first place, because he's still challenging himself. He's, he's, he's super prepared. He's coming up with new ideas and, Honestly, I, 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 it was a, it was an incredible challenge to rise to, but it was mostly a really beautiful um, inspiration and like reminder of why I had this fantasy to start with, and then study and then job was because of how he feels and how he treats acting. I got that same sense from him when I spoke to him. Something he brought up a few times was how much it scared him and why he took took that on. And I just asked it of you because I'm curious if elite actors have the same mentality as elite athletes. Like if you're guarding LeBron James, you got to bring your A game that night. So I was just curious if it's the same thing in your line of work. But the next point I... Well, I definitely I wanna... didn't feel like I could slack off. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, I certainly... My um my my best efforts were brought to each day of work. I guess what I mean to say is that it wasn't hard because I felt held. You know what I mean? Like right, yeah. You have some. He was along for the ride with you. It, absolutely. All you had to do was agree to dance. Right. Right. Got you. So I am utterly fascinated by the arc of your career and your rise to stardom. I genuinely mean when I say I think you and your team are doing an incredible job of selecting projects and building momentum off each one. To that end- Don't give, don't, don't give my agents any credit. They don't deserve, they don't- That's let, all let's you? Not plug, let's not plug my agents in this. All right, well, 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 if they're in the room with us, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, fellas and ladies. Just but kidding, let, they're amazing. Let me just ask you, how do you go about choosing your roles and what about this role drew you to it? Was there a-, a, a portion of it being like hey everyone check it out i could do comedy too actually my agent really really loved this project and he called me about it i was <laughs> um at the airport you know sometimes you you, you, you get an email or you, you get asked if you're interested in something this was like a phone call to tell me how excited he was about a script and then he he told me what it was about which i thought was hilarious um uh, I, I read it, I read it that day. And, um, and, and honestly, like, it, 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 I'm a big movie nerd. And if um, you just look at my timeline, and if at the age that I started to consume cinema, um, Nicolas Cage was just so much a part of it. And, um, and, and he's kind of my Brando, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and within every kind of uh, genre of, of, of movies, uh, whether it's a, a comedy or low budget independent or something big and commercial or action or whatever, he was still bringing, you know, these uh, wild characters to life. So um, that was obviously the biggest draw to me. And then having lunch with Tom Gormican and Kevin Etten and, um, 
and talking about Nicolas Cage. That was really the, the, that, the, that's all that we talked about. I felt like I may have known a little bit more than they did about his career. Um, and, uh, and, and that, and that could be what, you know, got me the part, um, was my, my true love of, uh, Nicolas Cage. Well, to that end, what did you learn from him that you'll take with you going forward in your work? I guess I would learn that, you know, to just never stop caring and, and, and to always keep learning and keep challenging yourself. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I couldn't have worked with somebody that was more thoughtful and, um, and also like, you know, genuinely dedicated and um, it, 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 it can, it was sort of like the portrait of what I kind of dreamed about and what my greatest influence was and to actually kind of see it executed in front of me or for that to be my actual scene partner kind of reminded me to not be lazy, to never get complacent and to, and that if you don't, if, if you don't care, you can't do it, you know? Right. So you always have to keep caring and, um, and risking and, and just, you know, really, putting everything that 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 you have into it no matter what which i think he's done in every single type of movie he's ever made yeah um there's a scene where your character and nick go through let's call it an adventure through the town and i said this to nick you guys do an incredible job of portraying what it's like being on you know to not spoil that um substance were you drawing from any personal experience in that scene and 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 how did you go about crafting that part of your performance i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> well let me just say as somebody who you know is aware i thought you guys did an absolutely incredible job of just like the wide-eyed disorientation <laughs> there was a funny thing that i did do actually um yeah, i took a bunch of drugs that day i'm just kidding um I actually looked at just out of curiosity. I went to YouTube, and 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 somebody had kind of um, uh, tried to at least as accurately as possible create what the visual experience is, um, just to teach myself or refresh in my memory. <laughs> and um, and uh, and 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 it was just so kind of it was such a practical thing to do that to actually. Uh, make myself um, use my eyes to sort of like change the details of what is visually surrounding me may have may have may have helped man you guys it, it was a riot an absolute riot so thank you for that laugh I genuinely mean that um you you, you brought up when you got the script what was your reaction when you first read it were you able to visualize and see the full scope of it at what stage of the process where you like, oh, I get what we're going for here now. I think the thing that I I was I was most um, engaged by was uh, how good the relationships in the movie were. The friendship between uh, Nicolas Cage and and Javi, and also uh, Sharon Horgan and and Lily Sheen, his family, and um, and and I just and even you know his relationship to his agent. Um, and I just really believed these 
relationships. I found them really engaging because yes, the idea is fantastic, especially if you're a Nicolas Cage fan, it, 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 you couldn't think of something better. Uh, but it wouldn't work if you didn't believe the relationships in, in the movie and, and actually almost kind of forget about the meta aspect and, and then just get invested in, and have a good time, which I think ultimately I didn't think they'd be able to pull off. I thought that it was like a really, really great idea. And it's just so unfortunate that it probably won't work. And I will say <laughs> it really did. I really had the best time when I That's saw awesome. it. And I'm really, really proud of Tom and Kevin and Nick and everyone involved because I just had such a good time and I miss movies. And this movie, you know, it, it just made me remember what movies are. Mm. Yeah, well, the fun that you guys have definitely comes through. I want to swing over to Amando, but I'm going to do my best not to pry about season three because I'm sure you get that. Well, I'm not going to tell you nothing. I know, I know. But I do want to ask sort of looking backwards. I grew up with the prequels, right? And mm. for me, this show was the first time I finally like understood Star Wars magic. It was the scene in the season one finale when you guys are holed in at the bar and Mando the door opens and you kick your way out and the score swells up and for the first time in my life I was like wow Star Wars magic I finally get it is there a moment like that for you in your show or the franchise at large well I was born in 75 so Star Wars is just part of my upbringing um uh the 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 first films uh and um it was, it was similarly like it is to kind of step on set and, and, and get in front of the camera with Nicolas Cage as your scene partner is a very similar experience to have like stepped onto the set of Mandalorian. And, um, and, and because there's so much that is made visually with this um, volume apparatus that is kind of a new wave of technology, but there are very, very practical effects that are involved in these very immaculate, incredible sets that are built. And, um, and it, yeah, it was like stepping into your, uh, uh, your own imagination that was so influenced by these first films that came out and, and there couldn't be anything um, more uh, bizarre and, and, and beautiful in that regard, you know, because it was so much a part of my childhood um, experience. Why do you think that this show has connected to fans in such a way? If the last 10 years have taught us anything about Star Wars, it's very hard to please a large portion of the base. What do you think that your show is doing well? I think it's just, I think it's really, really, I think it's really simple. I think it's just because John Favreau and Dave Filoni um, and everyone behind the show love uh, Star Wars so much. Yeah. Gotcha. And All take right. The time to actually like prioritize that love and to nurture that and to find the stories through something that's very close to their hearts similarly just to plug this movie as well as tom and kevin have done with like their love of nicholas cage you know right it's kind of what makes it work it's caring about it so much um so that so that uh, you know that that translates people can feel that right pedro i have like i said at the top i have been fascinated by your arc these last few years i think you've turned into one of the most likable easy to root for movie stars that we have i wish you all the best going forward whether it be 
What? You're gonna make me cry. Oh. <laughs> I, I was like, did I offend him? Did I offend him? <laughs> no. You're making me emotional. No, but seriously, man, I I, I love Very your work. Kind. You seem like such a great guy, and I can't wait to see all the the stuff that you have for us in the next few years, sir. Thanks, man. Thanks so Thanks. much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Pedro. Take care, sir. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 